0: Dan's message in the scripture reading this morning are on the story of David and Bathsheba. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness, cleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master job and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep. On his mat, among his master's servants, he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that as we come to your word, as we think about this rather darkened, honestly depressing, discouraging story, that you would help us see the light of your gospel in it. Lead, open our eyes to how you work mysteriously and how you're continuing to work in our world and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you were born in the 60s, then you're old. No, uh, if you were born in, in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you probably remember, if you were a kid in those, those decades, you probably remember sea monkeys. Anybody remember those? Okay, I, I was a big comic book kid uh, and so I remember seeing these ads like in every comic book. I remember those? The sea monkeys? A cute little sea monkey family. Uh, so eager to please, it says in the fine print you might not be able to read, so eager to please they can even be trained. Okay, did anyone actually ever order the sea monkeys? No one's willing to admit it? Okay, if you did, this is what you got microscopic little brine shrimp. So, hundreds and thousands of really disappointed boys and girls during the 60s, 70s, and 80s with those little brine shrimp. That's after two weeks of growth. If you kept them along, uh, alive for like a month or so, they'd get a little bit bigger. But the problem is they ate each other. So you really couldn't keep them alive very long. Um, so pretty discouraging. A uh, little you know, product there. Uh, those ads appeared alongside ads for X-ray vision glasses. Remember those? And, and the Charles Atlas you know, you might be a 12-year-old little wimpy kid, but you can get big like me ads. Uh, lots of ads in comic books that promised the world and obviously didn't deliver, right? Uh, alongside those ads that didn't meet the expectations of what they promised were all these other ads that you thought, I hope they don't meet the expectations that they've set. I hope they don't live up to those promises. Uh, there was ads for actual working submarines. That's just what we need, right? You know, our lakes and rivers filled with 12-year-old U-boat captains. That's great. Uh, (coughs) Rocket ships that were supposed to work, ray guns. Okay, and so you have these ads where the promises were put out there, and you're thinking, I hope they don't meet those expectations. Alongside ads that, you know, for sea monkeys, We, we come to expect those. It's kind of funny, right? We we expect that kind of stuff from comic book ads. We've come to expect it from from TV commercials to some extent. Uh, But what about when the promises come from God? Uh, What what do you do with those promises that come from God and and you look at them and you think, God, you set the bar pretty high. And, And it doesn't seem like the expectations have been met. Or, God, you made this promise... Are you sure? Are are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you sure that's a good promise to make? Maybe you should just leave that one unmet. I think that's part of the dilemma that we're faced with in this really familiar story, right, of of David and Bathsheba. it probably doesn't shock us as much as it ought to. It's a familiar story. We've heard it a lot, and we live in a day and age where we're really accustomed to political scandals, right? I mean, I could go down this whole long list. Bill Clinton, John Edwards, Herman Cain, Newt Gingrich. I included both Democrats and Republicans. Didn't want you to read into it in any way. Uh, But we're just used to scandal after scandal. And we read the story, and it just seems like, oh, it's another political scandal. You know, the king, the president, is immoral. No big shock. I think this probably should be read more like Billy Graham had an affair. Uh, that one would shock us, right? Uh, that one we would talk about. That one would disturb us. I think we need to read the story of David and Bathsheba more in that light and not political scandal. And We shouldn't be reading it in light of you know, tabloid journalism or even New York Times or Chicago Tribune kind of stuff Uh, The context for this is not our daily newspaper It's coming out of 2nd Samuel 7 In 2nd Samuel 7 David says to God God you've established Israel We're here. We're in the land We have houses. Now let me build you a house. You're living in this tent called the tabernacle. Let me build you a temple. And God says, no, not you, not now. Your son that comes after you, I'll establish him. He'll build me a temple. He'll build me a house. Right now, it's time for me to build your house. Not a physical structure with walls, but your dynasty, your legacy. David, I'm giving you really great promises here I'm going to establish you and your household forever I'm going to establish your kingdom forever I'm going to have and establish your throne forever this horrific story of David and Bathsheba is in that context and it makes us think God did you know what you were doing did you know the kind of legacy David was going to leave? A kingdom, a, a forever kingdom like this? Let's remind ourselves of some of the details of this story a little bit. David has sent the armies off to war. Some people read a lot into that and, you know, David stayed back while the army went off and there probably is something to it. He should have been out there with the men, but there's also a lot of good reasons why he would have, could have stayed back. It's what David does when he did stay back in the city and in the palace that is so troublesome. He's out on his roof and he he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Again, we shouldn't read anything into that. That's normal. But he sees her and sin begins to take root. Lust begins to take root, envy. And he sends a messenger, he says, go find out who that is. The messenger comes back and he says, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right there, those names are incredibly significant. Why? Because Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. One of David's most trusted companions, comrades in arms. One of those men that has been with David since the beginning fighting alongside him, fiercely loyal to him. And so is Eliam. So Bathsheba is the wife and the daughter of two of David's most trusted men. There's 37 mighty men of Israel in all, and two of them are connected to Bathsheba, but it goes beyond that. Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's closest advisors, a confidant named Ahithophel. That's hard to say. You'd expect the story just ends there but it doesn't it shows you the extent to which sin corrupts David who is to this point shown such such promise is now overwhelmed and he does something that you look at and you're like how could you do that that is so stupid so disloyal not only to your your men but to your God who's who's given you so much along the way. The story's bad enough right there. But it gets worse. Bathsheba concedes and she sends word to David and says, I'm pregnant. And the wheels begin to turn in David's mind. How do I how do I cover this up? I know. He sends a message to the general, Joab, and says, send back Uriah the Hittite. I I, want to talk to him. Uriah comes back, and and David begins to ask questions. How's the battle going? How are the men? How's Joab? Thanks for the update. Now go home. His thinking is, Uriah is going to go home. He's been out at the battle. He's missing his wife. He'll go in, and he'll, he'll be intimate with his wife, and then he'll think this child is his child, but the plan doesn't work. Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps outside with the servants on a mat. See, in those days, Israel had a custom that men would abstain from sexual relations during times of war. And Uriah is faithful to that. Uh, David calls him back in and says, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you go and lie with your wife? And Uriah says, surely as you live, I wouldn't do such a thing. My comrades in arms, my brothers in arms, they're sleeping outside in tents tonight. Joab, my general, my brother, he's sleeping outside. I'm not going to go and find comfort with my wife. Well, David says, okay, just stay here one more night. And he gets Uriah drunk. But Uriah still won't go home. Even drunk, the picture is Uriah is more faithful than David in this situation, even drunk. So the, the plan develops further. David sends Uriah back with a letter for Joab, the general, and says, put Uriah at the vanguard, put him at the point, and as soon as the battle gets fierce, withdraw, and Uriah will die. That's what Joab does. He, he obeys the orders of his king, and Uriah is killed. And not just Uriah. It says Uriah and some men were killed. In essence, David has murdered Uriah. When he gets news of this, he tells the messenger, go back to Joab and tell him, basically, these things happen. That's the king's response to this. God's response is quite different. In verse 27, God says, The thing that David did displeased God. Uh, this is a really pivotal point in David's life. Up to this point, David has lived uh, what you would probably call a charmed life. All of the breaks seem to go David's way. I know he had to hide in caves from Saul. Saul tried to kill him a couple of times, but Saul didn't. David keeps coming out on top. He's moved from being shepherd boy to king over Israel, victory after victory, gift after gift from God, wives, wealth, power, prestige, promises to have a kingdom that will endure forever, but now he's sinned atrociously, and God is displeased. As you begin reading the rest of 2 Samuel, which we'll be dealing with in weeks to come, you see this calamity begin to unfold on his family. Uh, Chapter 14 is really ugly, really ugly. Two of David's children, Amnon, one of his sons, lusts after and takes forcibly Tamar into his bed. Absalom is so upset by that, he kills Amnon, so brother killing brother. Absalom eventually leads a rebellion against his father. When he dies, things don't really get that much better. There's another rebellion from Sheba. After that, David's filled with pride and calls for a census that's a sinful census. Things just begin to unravel for David because of this. There's plenty of easy lessons. Well, not easy. Easy to see. Lessons from the story aren 't there? Moral lessons that we can uh, they 're just obvious. I mean, there's an implicit warning here isn't there? Uh, to be vigilant against sin always. Yeah, be vigilant against sin, uh, lest you fall, especially when things seem to be going your way. Uh, this week, I, I read a little proverb. It was actually a, a tweet. Um, it said that's how we get our proverbs nowadays through Twitter. Uh, it said 90% of believers pass the test of adversity. 90% of believers fail the test of prosperity. Uh, David stands as a warning. When you're prosperous, when things are going your way, be on guard because sin is still crouching at your door ready to devour sin was there uh, waiting for David to open the door waiting for David to entertain it and when he did it swallowed him up so there's this implicit warning be vigilant against sin I I think there's another implicit warning here don't idolize your leaders Uh, don't put them on a pedestal as though they were God they're not they're human They will fail. They will fall. If you run across a leader who who wants to be put up on a pedestal, who wants to be idolized, adored, worshipped, run. Run fast and don't drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, we're not meant to idolize leaders. Respect, yes. Honor, yes. Follow as far as is godly, yes but I think there's a sense where sin shouldn't surprise us. Not in ourselves and not in our leaders. So there's this implicit warning to be on guard. Another one, not to idolize leaders. I think there's also a a pushback against that kind of very cultural idea nowadays that our actions don't define us. That we're defined by our self-perception, not what we do. You know who Reese Witherspoon is, right? She's been in the news recently, this week, for, I guess, all the wrong reasons. Um, Her husband was pulled over for DUI, and while he was being arrested, she apparently berated the cop, uh, the police officer, and was herself arrested for disorderly conduct. Not the kind of stuff you want to be known for. Uh, But in her press release, she said those words don't reflect who I am. In other words, I'm a good person. I don't know where that came from. Or there's the story, again, recent, of the bus driver in Nebraska who got really frustrated with someone on his bus who was asking too many questions, and he beat the guy up mercilessly. I mean, punched him like 18 times, dragged him out of the bus, and just left him in the street and drove away. Through his lawyer, he said that's not me. I did it, but that's not who I am. As the story of David and Bathsheba unfolds, chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells this really elaborate story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had all he needed, lots of cattle, lots of sheep, But he threw a party one day, and he said, well, you know, instead of killing one of my sheep to feed my guests, I'm going to go and steal the sheep, the only sheep that the poor man has. That sheep that the poor man had, he had lived with the family as a pet, slept in their home, slept in their beds, been fed from their hand, but the rich man took that and slaughtered it and fed it to his guests. And Nathan says to David at the end of the story, what do you think should be done to that rich man? And David says, he deserves death. He should repay four times what he took. And then Nathan says, you, you are the man. You stole Bathsheba. You killed Uriah the Hittite. Though God's given you so much, you did it. And David doesn't dodge. He doesn't evade. He doesn't say, oh, that was a really low moment in my life. That's not who I am. He basically says, you're right, I'm the man. He he owns his sin and he confesses it and he repents and he says, I've sinned against God. And in that repentance, in that confession, he finds grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, There's still the consequences of his sin, but Nathan the prophet says, Your sins have been forgiven. Wonderful story of grace and repentance there. And there's definitely lessons to be learned about being vigilant against sin and not idolizing leaders, owning your sin and and repenting of it. But how do we get from this story of David and Bathsheba? How do we get from there to there? How do we get from David and Bathsheba to Jesus? Because I'm convinced if if we're reading our Old Testament right, we have to get there. Jesus was walking with his disciples shortly after his resurrection, and they didn't recognize who he was, and he said, let me tell you. And he reasoned with them from the Old Testament. From Moses to the prophets, all scripture, he said, points to the Messiah. All scripture points points to me. So how do you get from this gloomy story to Jesus? Go back to the sea monkeys. Go back to the ray gun advertisements. And those promises that you think, God, why would you make a promise like that? Maybe you should just let that one go. I mean, in some ways, David's reign has been a, a fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. That he would be a great nation. Well, now Israel is a great nation. Uh, they've defeated their enemies. They're established. They're strong. But they're still not a great holy nation. Because David's not a holy king. But God still promises, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And we're thinking, is that a good thing. I mean, this story is a horrific story of a king abusing his power. You know the word that shows up most frequently in this chapter? Sent. It shows David exercising his power, his authority. He sends the army. He sends the messenger to find out who Bathsheba is. He sends for and brings Bathsheba back. He sends for Uriah the Hittite. He sends Uriah home. He sends Uriah back to the battle. He sends a message to Joab. People are jumping at David's commands. And it's gone to his head. On top of the immorality and the theft and the murder, this is a horrible story of the king abusing his power. Maybe there'd be a better king out there. Any votes for Uriah the Hittite? I mean, he seems pretty upstanding in this. He seems pretty loyal. But the problem isn't really with David per se. It's with us. It's with humanity. We're flawed at our core. And so power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. I remember when I was in seminary, I was working as a a water polo coach. And I had about this much power right uh, over the the swimmers the the players on the team I knew nothing about water polo but I still had power Um, and we would do these things we call them kamikazes they're they're like suicides in basketball you know where you run from line back 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 and everyone hates it Uh, the swimmers hated it cuz in the pool there's no lines and so you're totally at the mercy of the coach who has the whistle And the coach blows the whistle and the team sprints. We always did this at the end of the practice when they were already exhausted. The team sprints in one direction and then you blow the whistle again and they sprint back. And you blow it again and they sprint the other way. And you're constantly having them change directions. And the potential for cruelty is just overwhelming. You'd wait till they get like, you know, a yard from the end wall. Then you'd blow the whistle and they'd groan and they'd yell at you, and you'd let them get within a yard again, and you'd blow the whistle. And they just hated it. And the power went to your head. <laughs> power corrupts just even a little bit. But the kind of absolute power that a king in the ancient Near East had corrupts absolutely. So, is this a good promise? I'm going to establish your throne forever? What do we do with that? Well, it's a promise that's meant to point us to a different kind of king. And not just a human king, not just a physical descendant of David, though the king that we're promised is a descendant of David. It's meant to point us to the divine king, Jesus. Jesus is the Davidic king who is established on the throne forever, whose kingdom lasts forever. Remember in Luke. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and Mary's wondering, what is going on? The angel Gabriel says, don't worry. Don't be afraid, Mary. you found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is one of the themes of Jesus' ministry. He went preaching and teaching. Yes, doing miracles, but he would do the miracles and then he'd leave so he could go somewhere and teach. And what he taught was the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now, repent and enter the kingdom, the forever kingdom of God. When Jesus is being tried before Pilate, Pilate says, are you you really a king? You don't look like a king. And Jesus says, I am. But my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate hangs a sign over the cross saying, Jesus, king of the Jews. And the Pharisees complain about it. And Pilate says, no. I've written what I've written. He is a king. But he's a king so unlike any other earthly king. Even David. David sent a man to his death so he could gain. Jesus goes to a death on the cross so that we would gain. So much of our thinking about the kingdom of God is thinking about timetables and how we square this passage with this passage and you know words like all millennial or premillennial or when the rapture is going to happen and those are all good discussions to have. But we cannot be distracted from the fact that King Jesus reigns now. Jesus brought the kingdom with him and it is a present kingdom even now. The earthly kingdom that we live in and that we work in, that we go to school in, that we pay our taxes to, that kingdom is very, very visible but it doesn't define all of reality. There's more. And the heavenly kingdom, while it's not visible, is very, very real. But what does that mean for us tomorrow, on that Monday, when we go back to our normal routines? It means three things, at least. Let me leave you with these three things. It means we go out into our world with a, a very resolute peace. The author of Hebrews says that we have inherited an eternal an unshakable kingdom. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom that we live in, uh, that's visible, it is entirely shakable. It can be shaken by homemade bombs. It can be shaken by fake tweets. Did you see that this week? The AP Twitter feed got hacked and they, someone sent out a tweet that the White House had been bombed and President Obama had been injured and the stock market dove. Briefly. That's shaky. The whole system is shaky. The world is shaky. And Hebrews says one day God is going to shake it to its foundations. But we belong to an unshakable, eternal kingdom. That ought to give us great peace. Even in the midst of news headlines that say worry, panic. We don't have to. Resolute peace. Peace. A growing desire for a holiness. We belong in a worldly kingdom. We, we live and operate here, and we're very concerned, right, that we behave right in this kingdom. We don't want to be arrested. We don't want to offend. We behave according to the standards of this world. But what about the kingdom of God? Are we concerned with the standards of the kingdom of heaven, with Jesus' standards? You find those in places like the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott once called that the constitution of the kingdom of God. As we grow and understand more the reality of this kingdom, the reality of Jesus' rule, we ought to desire conformity to kingdom standards. So There ought to be a growing pursuit of holiness And there ought to be an active hope. Not just a wishful, wistful kind of hope. Oh, I hope so. Uh, But a concrete hope that drives us to act. The kingdom is here now, but the kingdom is also a coming kingdom. There's a not yet aspect to it. King Jesus will return, and we ought to be living in light of that hope. Living in a way where we store up for ourselves eternal treasure and eternal rewards. They don't seem visible now but they are every bit as real. The story of David and Bathsheba is a dark story, but even in the midst of this, there's things that point us to the light of the gospel, to the light of the good news that Jesus reigns, and he is a good, righteous, merciful king who's inviting you into his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We do pray that you'd give us uh, eyes to see, eyes of faith to see that your kingdom is real and give us the determination to live as much in light of that kingdom, more in light of that kingdom than the visible kingdom that we see around us. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts and our minds, attune us to that. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.